The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. I got your message. It was extremely dangerous for you to come here. You could jeopardize the entire base. I have no choice. Palidor is preparing to displace the whole population of Grand Star in the coming weeks. I had to see you. Where are the people going to be relocated? At New Station. I thought you had clearly notified them that New Station did not possess enough energy resources to fulfill the needs of a new settlement. I told them that, but they did not change their mind. You must convince them. But they do not care. So you're closing down Grand Star. That's right. Goodbye, Grand Star. Good morning, New Station. And you know that we do not have enough energy to supply a new station. This exodus involves leaving 30,000 people without enough energy to live. We're just going to leave them behind, pretend they never even existed. How many would die if we just sat here and did nothing? I refuse that logic. Oh, come on, Rag. It's life. It's natural selection. You should know about that. I do. Mind you, it'll be me that's selecting. <laughs> oh, and Rag, I want to know whether I can count on you. You can count on me. <sighs> Liam, what do you want from me? I want you to oppose the exodus. Oh, that'll make Palador very happy. I need your vote. It'll be decisive. That's all you need from me, is it, Liam? My vote? What's in it for me? Your conscience will be clear. Ah, the conscience thing. Good day, everyone. It's Thursday, October 1st, 2015. I'm Bob Metz, and this is Just Right. Not broadcasting from 94.9 CHRW Radio Western, but still with you for the next hour or so. It's not right wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be alright. Yes, you heard correctly. In the wake of last week's broadcast, Just Right is not available on CHRW Radio, ostensibly for six weeks after which the station will have completed a review of its policy on spoken word shows. Whether the results of that review will make it possible for us to return to CHRW's lineup remains to be seen. But as soon as the matter is resolved one way or the other, you can bet that we'll be updating you at the appropriate time. In the meantime, for the next few weeks at least, and perhaps longer, it will not be possible for you to tune in to CHRW 94.9 FM on your dial every Thursday at 11 a.m. Fortunately, you'll still be able to hear the show by visiting justrightmedia.org or by subscribing to Just Right on iTunes. And of course, you can still continue to write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org Follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes, and of course visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, where, by the way, you can also donate to Just Right to help make it possible for us to continue bringing you this show weekly and dependably. Now, all right, as you heard in our opener today from Grand Star... Its leaders and governing executive were faced with the dilemma of casting their vote either on principle or in good conscience, or on the basis, I guess, of choosing the lesser evil. Sound familiar? That was a dilemma faced by Robert last week, of course, as he outlined his reasons for why he would be holding his nose and voting conservative in the Canadian federal election. Of course, There is no Freedom Party on the federal scene, as Freedom Party is a provincial political party only, so that option wasn't really available to him. But when should you vote for the lesser evil? And when should you vote on principle? I'll be addressing that question very directly in the second portion of our show today, while in the latter half of the show I'll be responding to all the feedback we've been getting on the Uber issue. Boy, talk about a hot-button issue. Now, uh, we also received some feedback on last week's show, which I want to deal with first before carrying on, 
And our first uh, item came from Rob S., who ha- has written that uh, uh, Cheryl had a back and forth, referring to his wife Cheryl, Cheryl had a back and forth on Facebook yesterday with a young uber ignorant friend on these two topics at large. I will urge him to peek around the corner of his plastic bubble and spend an hour of enlightenment. Thanks, guys. <laughs> well, great to hear that you and Cheryl have been listening in. Rob, and of course, always feel free to share our shows with anyone who you think might be interested in the issues we're discussing. And those issues last week, of course, were the Uber issues and how to vote in the election or how you might want to cast your vote. Now, this next uh, letter was very interesting and really prompted me into, into my line of thinking and what I wanted to do in the second quarter. And this came from Murray T., who's a regular listener and has been for quite a while. He, he wrote some interesting comments, not just once, but twice uh, within the last week or so. And he wrote uh, back on the 26th, quote, Outstanding show this week. It really hit on some things that have weighed heavily on my mind lately, mostly about voting. My preferences in this order were to either spoil my ballot, not vote, vote libertarian if available, And lately, after some experiences, vote conservative simply because of the exact reasons Robert mentioned on the show. I think, like Robert, I will have no choice but to go conservative. This journey you guys have taken me on has finally woken me up to the world around me. I feel like Neo in the Matrix after taking the red pill and seeing the real world for the first time. It's kind of disappointing and fascinating at the same time, but frankly, it scares the hell out of me. So I'm not sure whether to thank you or open a can of, of whoop-ass on you. <laughs> All kidding aside, I'd rather live in reality, so thank you. Lately, I've had another awakening, he writes. I've been spending more time on Facebook seeing what other people think. I have to say, I'm utterly shocked at what I see on my friends' pages that I am connected to. Out of 150 or so people, there are about a dozen conservatives, and the rest are raging progressives. I've engaged in some debate and completely wiped the floor with I've learned mostly from your podcast and its sources. I usually hit them with morality, a tactic I learned from Bob. The majority of people, though, are just hugely opinionated about everything under the sun, yet don't seem to have any definable principles to back it up, and worse, are not willing to put in any effort to learn. It just kills me, writes Murray. Well, I wrote back to Murray... And here's what I said to Murray. I said, I said, Murray, your, your comments are most encouraging. It's clear you've become very aware of the dangerous philosophical environment in which we are all finding ourselves. It's also clear that you've become aware of the power of a moral argument when you say that you could, quote, completely wipe the floor with your debate opponents online. Awesome, I said. Now, he's, repo- he's responded to that comment since, but I'll get back to that shortly. And I, compl- uh, I, con- I continued with him, as your own observations confirm, those of us who value freedom and living in a free society face a big challenge ahead of us. The good news is that it's rarely necessary to move the masses, as it were, quote-unquote, but to move the intellectual moral leaders of the community. One can do that by becoming one of them, become a moral leader, since that's an option open to anyone who chooses to exercise it. And it sounds like you're already on the right path. So my message to you is the same as yours to us. Keep up the great work. And that's what I wrote to to, uh, Murray last week. Well, it wasn't long before I got another response from Murray. And uh, got this, I think it was on Tuesday morning, and 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 he returned with this comment. He said, thanks for the kind words, Bob. I probably sounded a little overconfident and, and obnoxious with my choice of words. I don't really want to wipe the floor with anyone, as I don't think that approach is going to win many people over. Besides, I don't need to give the progressives any reason to get more upset than they already are, LOL. <laughs> okay, uh, well, don't worry, Marie. I, I really don't think anyone would take your comment literally or assume that you were being hostile or aggressive in some untoward way. We get it. And especially anyone who's uh, experienced what you've experienced, they get it too. But he goes on, he says, I've really been perplexed about whether trolling around on Facebook has been very productive, and it mostly doesn't feel like it. But some of the real lefties have said I've made them pause for thought. I'll take whatever wins I can get. 
You may have planted a seed with the moral intellectual leader's comment. I've been thinking about it all weekend. I'll chew on that one for a while as I read and listen and learn and see what comes up, comes of it. Thanks again. Talk to you soon. And that was uh, his last correspondence with us. Well, well, Murray, let's hope that there are others who think along the same lines as you. Or, uh, you know, we're, we'll all be in a lot of trouble. And ironically, that includes even the people who are on the other side of the issue, unaware that they'll soon be hoisted by their own petards should the current intellectual and moral trends continue. And uh, so that was my message to Murray. Now, finally here, one more. This one is actually, I'm going to name this person. This is Paul McKeever from his Facebook posting uh, just after our show last week. And he wrote, A very good episode of Just Right this last week. Still not convinced I should vote, but I quite sympathize with Robert's assessment of the parties. Now, I uh, I mentioned Paul's comment using his full name, not just because he's leader of Freedom Party, but because we're about to move into the broader issue of how to approach the dilemma faced by those of you who would, you know, like to comfortably vote with your conscience, if you would, or if you prefer, how and when to comfortably vote on principle, if that's how you prefer to look at it. Now, as leader of Freedom Party, of course, uh, Paul McKeever has had to deal with this very question head-on from the, from the very beginning. And one project he undertook in that regard was his production of, of the near-four-hour documentary called The Principle of Pot, which you can find on YouTube simply by Googling for it or searching on YouTube. And The Principle of Pot was essentially the story of Mark Emery's early days with Freedom Party, Um, then following him through that period to his abandonment of party politics, because obviously Mark was was dealing with this issue too, to his becoming the Prince of Pot internationally, internationally famous, and having just last year completed a five-year sentence in an American prison for selling pot seeds to Americans from Canada. And now we see See Mark on the hustings being a supporter of the Liberal Party of Canada under Justin Trudeau. Now, last week, of course, uh, Robert summarized his reasons for voting Conservative this time round, even though, you know, there were clearly many issues supported by the Conservatives with which he strongly disagreed. But not everyone will arrive at that decision. And one such person this election is, of course, another one, uh, another person once associated with Freedom Party in its early, di- early years, and that's Mark Emery, who is now supporting the Liberals on a single issue, let alone on, on the weighing of any of the issues, as we'll hear in a few moments. So with that in mind... The Mark Emery you're about to hear in our following audio bite on this side of the bumper is the Mark Emery of the late 1980s, long before he ever became acquainted with the cannabis issue, let alone one day become the infamous Prince of Pot. Um, By this point in time, he had already broken uh, censorship laws by selling two live crew records that were banned, and he sold them in a store called City Lights here in London. And he, of course, also opened that store, he opened his retail stores in defiance of Sunday shopping laws when that was prohibited, and was perhaps the first person in Ontario to have served a jail sentence for that offense as well. Now, on the other side of the bumper, the Mark Emery you will hear is the Mark Emery of today specifically as interviewed on a September 17th YouTube posting and report called Press for Truth, which is hosted by Dan Hicks. Although ostensibly about the pot and cannabis issue, the real issue in principle being discussed is how to affect change in a democracy. That was the issue uh, that sent Mark Emery and I on our separate ways. We, we did not agree on the tactics, although we supported each other's issues. And that was part of the story chronicled in The Principle of Pot, from which this first audio bite has been taken, produced and narrated by Paul McKeever, and which features, among other voices you'll hear, those of Mark Emery, myself, Ayn Rand, and others, with the first voice you're about to hear being that of Mark Emery, speaking at a Freedom Party dinner way back in 1989. Let's listen in. The thing is, so what the hell do we do about it? Really, that's the bottom line. I mean, we all know democracy's piece of shit, in my opinion. No, I, won't, I won't lie to you. It's, just, it's garbage, right? I mean, the whole democratic process is garbage. I mean, we run elections every year, and we appeal only to the disaffected because the mass majority of people don't give a darn. They're too confused to know what the hell they want. And when they're given the power to rule someone else's lives, they'll seize that like they do in any kind of panic situation. They grasp at straws. 
to me, there's only one way to get social change, and historically, this is the only way I've ever noticed, and uh, and it certainly worked for me, and it's worked historically. The only reason we got rid of slavery in the United States is because people went and broke the law and helped slaves for get free. They just took them. They just disobeyed the law, the Fugitive Slave Act, and they brought them over, and they said, to hell, you put me in jail, or we'll have a civil war. You know, the reason the abortion laws were changed is because doctors performed abortions anyway, even if it was against the law, and they said, I don't care, charge me. Eventually, it's going to come down. And uh, you look at every kind of law, from prohibition, people drank anyway. The law was just, they just said, fine, go ahead, charge us. You know, and, uh, you know, do what you can. But eventually, the law was changed because people broke it, disobeyed it. Historically, every good thing that has happened in our society in social change is because people simply disobeyed the bad law and went ahead and did what they wanted to anyway. And they made their point to the public by saying, I don't care about the consequences. This is too important to me to worry about some petty jail term or some fine or some embarrassment of the court. It doesn't concern me. I don't care. I'm going to go and do what I want anyway. And that, when you think about it, folks, is the only way we got anything good in this whole society. Because nothing good has come from democracy. No great change ever occurred because some politician wanted it to. This is absolutely true. In fact, that's why Freedom Party is so unique. We think it can be won through the democratic process. What Mark fails to understand, from my point of view, is that there has never been a party like this before. So obviously, it can never have been won through a democratic process. That choice never existed democratically. Yes, but how can you expect to reverse this trend when, as we've said, the country is run by majority rule through ballot, and that majority seems to prefer to vote for this modified welfare state. Oh, I don't believe that. You know as well as I do that the majority today has no choice. What do you mean? The majority has never been offered a choice between controls and freedom. The majority of the people has never been given a choice. You know that both parties today are for socialism, in effect, for controls, and there is no party. There are no voices to uh, offer an actual pro-capitalist, laissez-faire, economic freedom and individualism. That is what this country needs today. You always had someone of the left to right wing spectrum. Either, you know, you've got various choices of which government prohibitions you want. You never had a complete package based on, a, on one consistent principle. Mark was calling not only for the abandonment of elections, but also for an abandonment of the effort to change people's minds. An abandonment of philosophical advocacy. So the bottom line is, you want social change, forget about elections, forget about convincing your neighbor he's too busy doing other things to worry about some intellectual argument about why we need a dramatic revolutionary change of the intellect. It's just not going to happen. You want to use your time effectively, you do what I do. You just say, F you, I'm going to break the law, and uh, give me 10 days of court time, give me three weeks of non-stop publicity, I want to talk to everybody I can get to about why this is a bad law, why this law cannot coexist in a free society, why I refuse to obey it, and why I'm encouraging everybody else to disobey it, and if you let people like me go on forever, you're going to have a revolution on your hands, so my advice to you is stop f***ing around with me and get rid of this bad law. Okay. That's how you're going to get significant social change. Just days after giving his speech at the Freedom Party dinner, Emery resigned from the executive of the Freedom Party. He later told the press that he did not believe in the democratic process anymore, and that Canada would be better off without a government. He said he had no problems with Freedom Party itself, but that his beliefs had evolved to a point where his principles would no longer allow him to be a member of any political party. The only really important result is that we get a liberal majority on October 19th in that regard and it would hopefully lead to legalizing marijuana or taking it out of the schedule six months later and the province is regulating it and then we'll see what we can do there. We know these parties are, are, are known for riding in on tickets. Let's just hypothetically say if Trudeau was riding in on the weed ticket. I mean, where does he stand on foreign policies? Where does he stand on military intervention? Where does he stand on a monetary reform? Um, do, are you aware of his positions on these things? I couldn't care less. I absolutely could not. To me, this whole election is entirely a referendum on legalizing marijuana with a benefit that we get rid of Stephen Harper. I really don't care about the other views of the, any of the parties because they're all nuanced at best. It's all really a battle over personalities if you get beyond our one issue. But our one issue I've been working for for 45 years in my life, and we have never had an opportunity like this as a voter. So we'd be absolutely stupid and derelict 
not to seize this opportunity to see if we can get a party that has a chance to form a majority that promises full legalization to actually see if that happens. There's never been a chance like that, and there's not likely to be one if we this up. It seems a, like a dangerous, uh, dangerous move um, to put that much into somebody like Justin Trudeau when you're not even aware what kind of foreign policy is and what kind of wars of aggression he might continue, or if he's going to continue the things that Stephen Harper has been doing, the things you've been fighting against for 14 years. How do you know you're not being duped into voting for Justin Trudeau to carry on these same old things, the same old left-right, same two sides of the same bird? Your concerns are not my concerns. I don't have any of those concerns. I am completely confident that if we got a liberal majority, we would see some form of legalization, and that's all I care about. I do not care about the other thing. They're not going to change whether it's the NDP, liberals, and conservatives, for the most part. And other parties simply aren't going to have it. They don't get the economic support. They don't have the numerical support. You know, I'm, I'm playing in the real world. I want to see change in the next year. That's only going to happen if people vote for the Liberal Party. It's not going to change if they vote for the Green Party, the NDP, or the Conservatives. My goal is single-minded, as I've told you. Legalizing pot, this is the only way I can make that happen going to the polls. How many times do these politicians have to make these promises before we'd start to realize that they don't carry out these promises once they get in? You're editorializing. If you're a journalist, you're supposed to ask me the questions. What you've just done is stated an opinion which I don't agree with, nor do I want to discuss because it's a cynicism that I have no value for. Okay, well, it's, it's, it's very serious because this is leading well, towards... serious to you, but I've told you. It doesn't bother or concern me. I don't care what they stand for. I'm comfortable being a member of the Liberal Party and advocating them for the very important reason to legalize marijuana. I'm simply not on the radar to identify any other issue. Anyway, i got to run. i got to see my wife. It's been good talking. Thank you. All right, take care. All right. Well, uh, there you have it. That is uh, Mark Emery's uh, position on um, putting blind faith into uh, Justin Trudeau, the leader of the uh, li uh, Liberals, um, riding in on that wee ticket. Um, so we'll just have to wait and see if this tarnishes the Mark Emery legacy or not. Of course, one of Mark's great and consistent legacies was what he helped start with his past involvement and critical role in having made Freedom Party of Ontario a possibility in the first place. To say nothing of his role in having moved the goal of legalizing cannabis forward more than any other single individual could ever lay claim to. I must note, however, that I do not and never did agree with Mark's assessment of the democratic process as he described it at the Freedom Party dinner back in the 80s. The laws were not changed because people broke them. They changed because of the very democratic process that Mark called a piece of bleep, okay? You know, still a libertarian, I'm afraid. So you can see how the voting dilemma can split people of otherwise like mind on given issues, and in the process, potentially weaken each person's position through support by compromising on too narrow a focus within too broad a field, namely electoral politics and elections. That's not where and when you should have the pot debate or any single issue debate unless it's extremely overwhelming. And it is glaringly obvious that Trudeau has kept that issue out of his election ads, at least thus far. I haven't heard too many election ads where Trudeau's talking about the pot issue. Only the, the Harper government's talking about the pot issue. And they're using that against them. So to align oneself, you know, with a set of principles, liberal in this case, that would ultimately undermine or pervert your own objective is a political act of suicide, in my humble opinion. But uh, that's nothing new to Mark. I mean, my humble opinion. But what we just heard there was a single-mindedness and focus on an issue that's quite understandable and consistent given Mark's viewpoint that all of the parties are otherwise exactly the same. I mean, if he really believes that, then his support of the Liberal Party, even if only based on a promise from that party's leader, Justin Trudeau, it's completely logical at least. But is it rational? Uh, how can I put this best? When faced with a choice that only offers you as, you know, as your best choice, something that you might consider to be the lesser of a given number of evils, and no, no choice for the good, well, then you've only really got two options, don't you? 
You can not vote, decline your votes, blow your ballot, or some non-voting equivalent, or number two, you can put yourself through the process described by Robert Vaughn last week, or as expressed by Mark Emery in the Press for Truth interview we just heard. It's your choice. But now comes your real dilemma. Are you ready for this? Imagine that one day a new political party emerges on the scene, and lo and behold, this new party is just the perfect, or at least the very near perfect, political home and option for you. So far, so good. But here's the bad news. You learn from some poll or opinion survey that the party of your true political color turns out not to be the popular choice of the voting majority. A vote cast for your way of looking at things and for your preferred solution or approach to a given issue or problem would be the proverbial wasted vote. And here's some even worse news. The party you hate the most has a chance of winning, and it's a close race with the second-place party, a party that's also moving in the wrong direction, save for one or two issues. Now what? What should you do in this situation? Remember, this isn't the same as being faced with voting for the lesser of a given number of evils, however you yourself may define those evils. In this scenario, there is a party of virtue by your own standards. And so what are the implications of voting for the party you like in the face of probable or certain defeat at the polls versus the implications of voting against the party you fear by voting for another party and not voting for the party you like? Did you follow that one? Did that make any sense? So in a nutshell, that question pretty much describes the two different paths that Mark Emery and I took at our fork in the political road way back when we embarked on our separate ways. On the Freedom Party path, which was long laid out in advance, the history and record of the past three or four decades has now demonstrated that the party has remained wholly consistent and, and dedicated to its principles, has won many individual issue-oriented lobby efforts, some in which Mark actually played a part, particularly on the Sunday shopping issue, but we also defeated many tax schemes like ongoing BIAs where the, we were the first to win a defense against the Human Rights Commission complaint, etc., etc., all archived online. Freedom Party, though, has now moved on to focus its energies on the electoral arena, the only real place from which changing any laws can emanate. Even Mark Emery has come to that inevitable conclusion now, as I knew he must, even as I was watching him leave on his world trek after having left not only Freedom Party, but also his well-established business in downtown London, City Lights Bookshop, which still continues today. In contrast... Mark's path over the past couple of decades has certainly not been a consistent one, as was made abundantly clear in what we heard before the last break, it's, it, or during the last break. It's, uh, you know, it's certainly gotten him a lot more notoriety, although to be fair, he, you know, he got a lot of that when he was under the auspices of Freedom Party too, now that I think of it. But uh, of course the pot issue, which is an issue about prohibition, certainly attracts more than its fair share of attention for a single issue. So back to the broader question. Now, I, got, you know, I had this letter forwarded to me on this very issue from someone during a previous election in which Freedom Party itself was involved, and, and it came from someone who also, also listened to the show, and he wrote and, and, and wrote this, and I quote, Bob, I've listened with interest to several of your radio discussions. You and the Freedom Party seem to make a lot of sense to me. However, I, and like many other people, are wrestling with a dilemma with respect to voting for your party. I look at the alternatives, liberal, conservative, or NDP, their leaders, policies and history, and I just shake my head. Voting for any of them will most likely result in more of the same lying, deceit, and waste, as well as a continuation of ruinous tax and spend policies. One of these parties might be slightly less objectionable than the other two, but just barely. So assuming I come to the conclusion that the Freedom Party would offer, offer a realistic opportunity to start turning things around, how can I and other like-minded individuals justify voting for them, end quote? And that's a good question. It's one that obviously 
we've had to deal with over the years. But you know, there's an old saying that voting for the lesser of three evils is still voting for evil. Understandably, that's all one can do when evil is the only choice offered. But now, when you discover you've got a choice, uh, that's the real source of the dilemma. You know, it's a harder choice, isn't it? It's harder than voting for the lesser of three evils. As you can imagine, I've heard it many times before. Some people have actually gotten angry with us, even though they liked our policies and perspectives best, over a false fear that we would, you know, somehow split the vote, when in fact there is no vote to split because we're just on a different path. All of the other parties are in full agreement on everything from the fundamental purpose of government to the promotion of green energy policies to you name it. Now, finding yourself potentially faced with having a real option in the political marketplace, like one that you generally agree with, this dilemma boils down to a single choice between two options. You can expediently vote against the objectionable politician in power, feeling that you've played a part, you know, in in throwing him or her out should he or she even lose. But it's a wasted vote gamble in a no-win scenario. The real irony is that either way, you'll still get more of what you object to now because that is what all of the other parties currently in the legislature are all committed to. Now, you, Or, number two, you can vote for a party or candidate who most closely represents your own views on the issues, confident in the knowledge that to do so is both the principled and most pragmatic path to a long-term victory. Now, if you agree with candidate A, but believe only candidate B or C can win, and therefore you vote for one of them, the real question that needs to be asked is, how do you... As a voter, supporting a candidate you know is moving in the wrong direction, but maybe at a different pace, justify your vote in terms of ever expecting things to turn around politically, if that's what you really want. So, you know, it seems to me that in the face of what you regard as the good, you know, the candidate you agree with, whatever that is, voting for a candidate or party that you regard as on some level of evil and disagree with is both an injustice to the candidate or party who should have earned your and deserved your support, and, yes, a betrayal of your own convictions. It's like punishing the victim and rewarding the perpetrator. Let me tell you, I've seen a lot of that lately. In each and every provincial election, you know, there's, there are sometimes five to sometimes a dozen candidates vying for a single seat. All of them will lose, save for one. So using the logic underlying the wasted vote scenario, that would effectively mean that voting for any of the losers would be a wasted vote. Or, in other words, unless you vote for the winner, your vote doesn't count. And, you know, does that make any sense? Because that's where the logic will eventually lead to you, especially if you're looking for change. You know, so people think that their one vote doesn't have an impact, and so they try to put it someplace where they think it will, which means putting it with a lot of other people who are voting for the wrong reasons, too. But fortunately... That's not the case. Getting elected is a process. It's not an event. Political progress has to be achieved one step at a time and not simply measured against some unrealistic win-or-lose interpretation of political elections. That's a sure prescription for failure, and no successful politician or political party that I know of ever thinks this way. Political losses and setbacks are merely part of the process. So, if, you know, if that's of any help to those of you facing a dilemma with where to put your vote in this election, you're very welcome. But if I've just messed everything all up and pushed you even further into your dilemma, well, please accept my apologies. But those are really the only parameters of the dilemma as I see it. So, to move on, if there are Two things that both the pot issue and the Uber issue have in common, which we'll be discussing after the break, it is the issues of prohibition versus monopoly and control. Freedom is still not part of the debate, unfortunately, and that's because no one with direct interests in either endeavor really cares about the big picture and the rest of us. It's about their issue, their objective, or their corner of the market for personal gain. Last week I suggested that industries like driving for hire or even growing cannabis should, you know, legally really be considered little more than cottage industries with no particular laws or regulations outside the normal already existing laws. This would not in any way, of course, prevent businesses and practices very much like those of today from continuing to do what they do, without someone forcibly keeping the competition out, of course. Nor 
would it close the doors to any as yet undiscovered ways of, of integrating these products and services into our legitimate, you know, economic free, enter- free enterprise and marketplace? So with that preamble in mind and also knowing that we'll be, take, well, that we'll be talking about the Uber issue when we return from our break, what can we reasonably expect from the kind of political parties now in power on, uh, on either of these issues? Well, here's the analysis of what Dan Hicks, the person we heard interview Mark Emery about his liberal support, called the Trudeau deception on his online Press for Truth series. The segment I've edited for today focuses on the electoral issues involved with the cannabis issue and not really with the pot issue per se, although you know, it's not escapable. And even though I understand that Dan Hicks is somewhat of a libertarian and anarchist, whose views may differ from my own, I think his analysis of what to expect from both Trudeau and Harper on the cannabis issue is spot on the mark. Not the Mark Emery, sorry, uh, just the mark. Federal Liberal Party leader Justin Trudeau is a neoconservative with better public relations than his counterpart Stephen Harper. In fact, aside from his stance on legal marijuana, there is essentially no difference between him and Harper. Both agree on wars and the police state, and more power to the state and less to the people. But because he's pro-cannabis, we're supposed to overlook everything else. But even in that area, Justin is merely a face without any substance. He doesn't have the slightest clue as to how he'll legalize cannabis. When asked about a specific plan, he replied, No, not as of day one. The actual model isn't going to be spelled out in our election platform because we need responsible study to make sure that we are doing it right in a way that is suited to Canada. Keeping legalization plans secret makes sense according to Justin because we have to build rapidly a plan to protect our kids to stop the criminal elements from profiting and to not criminalize a whole generation of people. As in, any specifics of his plan without the special knowledge that comes from the Prime Minister's office is unfit for an election campaign. Tax revenue and control. That's all legalization is about, Justin goes on to say. If you regulate it, if you control it, Whether it's working with the provinces, which we'll have to do anyway for the equivalent of a liquor control board to sell it. Whether you pick and choose particular outlets that are allowed to do it, the carding, the making sure that penalties for selling to underage people are significant, and the returns just aren't there, combined with the public education campaign around being responsible, is going to go a long way towards protecting our kids and preventing criminal organizations and gangs from making the millions and millions of dollars that they do from pushing this illicit substance. In other words, if we let the Liberal Party regulate and control cannabis, they will work with the provinces to create some kind of cannabis control board that manages sales. Or it's possible that like in Washington State, the existing liquor control board will just incorporate the newly legalized goods and services within their domain. Imagine the cannabis selection of Ontario's beer store cartel, coupled with the government-owned and operated LCBO. A control board of bureaucrats handing out applications, licenses, and determining who gets to grow, buy, and sell. This system is practically already here in the medical regime. It's called the MMPR. There is a continuity of government, and despite all his anti-marijuana propaganda, Harper is setting the country up for legalization. It's never going to get any better. Don't look for it. Be happy with what you got because the owners of this country don't want that. I'm talking about the real owners now. The big, the wealthy, that 
The real owners, the big wealthy business interests that control things and make all the important decisions. Forget the politicians. They're, they're, they're an irrelevant. The politicians are put there to give you the idea that you have freedom of choice. You don't. You have no choice. You have owners. They own you. They own everything. They own all the important land. They own and control the corporations. They've long since bought and paid for the Senate, the Congress, the state houses, the city halls. They got the judges in their back pockets. And they own all the big media, media news, all the big media companies, so they control just about all of the news and information you get to hear. They, they spend billions of dollars every year lobbying, lobbying to get what they want. Well, we know what they want. They want more for themselves and less for everybody else. But I'll tell you what they don't want. They don't want a population of citizens capable of critical thinking. They don't want well-informed, well-educated people capable of critical thinking. They're not interested in that. That doesn't help them. That's against their interest. That's right. You know, there's a lot of truth in what George Carlin just said. And it's very applicable to our next point of discussion. Apparently... The the debate surrounding municipal taxi monopolies versus Uber has touched a nerve, particularly the nerve of our politicians determined to keep their monopolistic crony practices in place. These actions have caused me to reconsider their motives, not from their politically stated point of view, uh, but, you know, from what appears to be more their personal self-interest, shall we say? As a longtime fan and advocate of capitalism, of course, on last Thursday's broadcast of Just Right, I broke a personal taboo, as I said. I I dared to ask the question, will the real capitalist pigs please stand up? And you can hear that show online anytime you like at justrightmedia.org. And, um, you know, as of this writing... The Wynn government is considering Bill 53, Protecting Passenger Safety Act 2015, which again, under the guise of protection, is really legislating the prohibition of a competitive taxi industry and market. The bill passed second reading on April 15th and has been ordered referred to the Standing Committee on Social Policy. Bill 53 was introduced in December by Liberal MPP John Fraser, Ottawa South, to amend the Highway Traffic Act with respect to the offenses relating to, quote, picking up a passenger for the purposes of transporting him or her for compensation without a required license permit or authorization. The fine for these offenses is increased, end quote. Those convicted of failing to have received the necessary permissions from the monopolists will also receive three demerit points, If convicted on the same offense within a five-year period, the officer shall suspend the driver's license and impound his or her motor vehicle for 30 days, end quote. Now, (laughs) geez, you know, know, personally, I see this whole issue as one of a long-standing protection racket having been exposed and, and considered in its proper context by the media and public for the first time. And, um... You know, this is something I've been active on long, a long time ago, even talking about uh, going back to the, to, the, to the 1990s when we were involved with this on the side of the, of the taxi people, in, in fact. But, you know, like pigs themselves, the Uber controversy, as they say, has legs. And as we covered from last week, you know, from France to Ontario, this remarkable and universal test tube illustration of the evils of monopoly you got to say, it's simply unparalleled. Where where are you going to find such a great example? And, of course, it has also resulted in some interesting feedback from those of you who have been receiving our regular updates and who have been listening to the show. So here's some of that feedback, and I have to say that I got a lot of this through some of uh, Freedom Party's feedback because, of course, a lot of our uh, members have been listening to the show both on the air and online, and um, and we're connected to it because uh, of this issue. This issue has been, uh, of course, brought up in other media as being a Freedom Party issue. And, of course, not everyone on the Freedom Party mailing list uh, likes our point of view, which is something you can do, by the way. You can any, anyone who wants can just uh, visit the Freedom Party, freedomparty.on.ca, and, and uh, you know, click on the Update button, and we can send you regular updates, and you can cancel at any time, no cost, obligation. But here's one person who did that and decided, well, Freedom Party is not for them. And he writs uh, DA, I won't uh, use anybody's real name here, 
But he says, please remove my email address from your mail out list. After listening to your argument on the radio, and here he's referring to my debate with James Connolly on CJBK radio, uh, regarding Uber, he says, I must end my interest in your platform. It goes beyond Uber and the taxi industry. I am led to believe by your argument that one should have total freedom in Canada to do anything you want to do in whatever endeavor. No rules attached. This is chaos. Is this what the Freedom Party is all about? Sorry, not for me or my Canada, he says, end quote. Now, of course, I thanked him for his letter and told him that we always appreciate it when Freedom Party, when, some, when, they, when they, you know, someone writes us to let us know that Freedom Party is not for them, and I'm not being facetious about that. That's a, that's a great thing for them to do. But, you know, there were no specifics in that, and, of course, uh, I had to let him know that, you know, judging by his response with its a- absence of specifics, um, I have to conclude this person clearly is in support of keeping a political cap set on the number of people permitted to offer rides for compensation, because at no time was there a call for any other specific change in any other regulation, since, as I've been stating, all those other things are distractions and would take care of themselves. There are already other authorities and legal means of enforcing certain rules and conditions, you know, insurance, safety checks, communication networks. These have nothing to do with the trade caps on taxi services per se, which is pure monopoly. The perception, you know, that our objection to these caps goes beyond Uber and the taxi industry or that there should be no rules attached is correct on the first point and incorrect on the second of course, um, you know, the fact that it goes beyond Uber, that's true. And, and both with what we say on, on the show Just Right and what I do through Freedom Party, you know, above all, these things stand for the rule of law and the protection of life, liberty, and property. A free market is a market free of fraud and coercion, and it's the government's job to keep it that way. All economic transactions in such a market are consensual, as consent is the basis of moral and civilized relationships and, of course, of freedom itself. And that's the broad principle upon which our view on the taxi limits is based. Now, these principles and distinctions were clearly elaborated upon, you know, with uh, everything we've been saying in the past. But in the absence of specifics, and because, you know, people write to us and tell us they disagree with us, but don't give us specifics, just general concerns. Here's my response in a very general way. You know, What's important is that rules and laws be right and just, not merely that they exist. Bad laws do harm. Good laws protect from harm. The laws governing the taxi industry are bad laws and need to be changed into good laws. The choice is never between law versus no law. Let's get, get, get your head out of there. You know, to reduce the discussion to, to that level is to obliterate all moral considerations of right or wrong and good and evil. When the law is used to do, you know, the opposite of its legitimate function, you know, which would be used to prevent or limit by the use of legal force, not by consent, freedom of exchange, which is essentially what the taxi cap cap does to new entrants in the field, that's a violation very clearly of an individual's right to engage in a career or occupation of his choice if they should wish to enter a field prohibited by law. And that was the very issue faced by both Barry Wells and Stephen Orser way back in 93 and 94 when they, as taxi drivers, you know, at the time wishing to be independent of the brokers, uh, you know, that, that were forced upon them by the city, and this was long before the days of Uber, well, they came to Freedom Party and to the London Middlesex Taxpayers Coalition for help. And, um, of course, we have all of this archived online again, where you can look it up at your whim. But the principles of freedom never change, and neither apparently do freedom's opponents. Defending the former and, you know, Condemning the latter, I guess, is what this is all about, what we're doing here, both through Just Right and in what I do politically. Now, here's one other letter I got before we go to the break, and this came from uh, uh, letter writer B.F., uh, who, who is, I think, from the St. Thomas area, but he wrote and said, uh, Hi, Bob, I'm legally blind, and Uber is the perfect setup for me. At half the price of a taxi from downtown to my house, Uber has enabled me to get around far more using a cleaner environment uh, by people with more 
a more personal approach to their customers, and they actually speak our two official languages. Taxi drivers are free to drive for Uber if they wish. They forget that buggy manufacturers went out of business when the car was invented. Would they have preferred to outlaw the automobile instead? They have to get with the times. It's more a government problem than a taxi problem. Governments have no way to get their pound of flesh from Uber, but it is another way to starve the government until they too have to downsize like everyone else. Unfortunately, they choose to print more funny money rather than try to work within their means and spend no more than they take in. Good for Uber, and end quote from BF. And well said. You know, your comments that the taxi drivers are free to drive for Uber if they wish is a compelling one, especially as an enticement for already licensed and insured drivers to switch sides, if you would. Since you're writing, this question has already emerged as a major part of the debate. Unfortunately, even so, the artificial cap placed on the total number of allowable drivers would still be an impediment to the market regulation of supply and demand. It's, you know, it's that trade cap that's got to go, and the rest will take care of itself. Now, I'm going to take a quick break again, and uh, going back to Dan Hicks, again from Press for Truth, who carries on now with what his image of legalizing pot would be if this came to pass in Canada, and uh, and you're going to hear about a few other monopolies in this too. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Let's listen in, and we'll be back with more feedback. Legal cannabis is taxable cannabis. It will take revenue out of the hands of organized crime and transfer it to the larger apparatus of organized crime, the federal government. Justin Trudeau and Ontario Premier Kathleen Wynne are ideological allies. But in regards to cannabis, we need to look no further than the Ontario alcohol model and Kathleen Wynne's refusal to change the status quo. In Ontario, the beer store controls 79% of the market. The rest of the market is divided between the state-owned LCBO and independent breweries. Like BC's independent farmers, these breweries have little capital and distribution reach compared to their corporate competition. The Molson Coors Sapporo Cartel control what is on the shelves at the beer store. The breweries that aren't a part of this cartel are at a competitive disadvantage, and not because of some free market, but because of prohibition era rules and regulations that are there to protect people from themselves. Ontario's beer cartel charges independent breweries higher rates to stock their products on the beer store shelves. Independent breweries must either hike their prices in order to justify the higher rates and attempt to make their money back, or take a loss at the expense of having their product sold alongside corporate beer. But just like Trudeau said, if someone wants to brew their own beer or make their own wine, they're more than welcome to. But the vast majority of consumers are happy to go to the liquor store. Which means, maybe you can grow one or two plants, but in order to be a legal marijuana producer, you need millions of dollars and the right political connections. The goal is always to corner the market and price out competitors. Can you imagine a scenario where a top few producers supply 80% of cannabis in Canada while BC farmers, the original growers of BC Bud, are priced and regulated out of existence. Yes, we may be legal according to Justin Trudeau's standards, but what is the point of being legal if the market is so rigged that competition is impossible? The only thing that separates Justin Trudeau from the other candidates is his stance on legalization. But what Trudeau is advocating is not the end of prohibition, it's just a different version of it. There is a continuity of government, and legalization is a foregone conclusion because the people are demanding it, and Justin Trudeau as well as the power elite see their opportunity for more control. It doesn't matter who wins this election. It's not the vote that counts, but the one who counts the votes. Ah. 
delighted to join you for a an ably drink, uh, aren't we, Mrs. P? We certainly are. What, what are they doing here? Absolutely, dear boy. <laughs> Allow me to congratulate you on the keeping your lower animals in order. Thank you. You're an example to all farmers. I mean, well, let's face it. No animal suffered from working a little harder or eating a little less, did they? <laughs> um, the present company excluded, of course. Another toast to uh, Animal Farm. No, not Animal Farm. I have decided we should revert to our proper name of Manor Farm. Oh. To Manor Farm, then and our continued prosperity. Absolutely, dear boy. <laughs> I can't tell the difference between them. You know, it's true. <laughs> if uh, businessmen and politicians climb into the same trough together, it is pretty hard to tell them apart, isn't it? Ah, uh, well, only time for a couple of more uh, uh, pieces of feedback right now. And this one comes to us from E.S. on September 18th, who wrote, uh, Robert, excellent work. I don't know what the situation is like in London, in Toronto, where the writer is. Uh, the major cost is the taxi license rental. I have been trying to find out who owns the various plates with little success. I guess if our politicians had existed at the start of the 20th century, they would have banned automobiles in favor of horse and buggy whip. <laughs> and I have to agree with that. You know, the situation in, in London really hasn't changed all that much from how it was reported in our 1994 archived report, which appeared, uh, which we talked about earlier. You know, other than now having uh, four brokers instead of two, all of the other conditions in London are pretty much the same, except I guess the numbers changed a bit. As with Toronto, London cabbies have to pay exorbitant license fees and purchase privately held plate licenses. Ad, as noted in our own 1994 report, that was the last time we got involved with the taxi I issue, but on a whole other end of the story. Quote, Section 232 of the current Municipal Act, and that was in 1993, enables Ontario cities to arbitrarily limit the number of cab plates in any given municipality, forcing prospective taxi entrepreneurs to either purchase an existing license from a current plate holder for up to $30,000 or to pay over $500 per month to rent a license from a plate holder, end quote. And those were in 1994 dollars, so consider that. Now, as to your horse and buggy whip analogy, you've hit the nail on the head. Uh, you know, one is reminded of the resistance to, uh, you know, broadcast music videos when the home videotaping revolution began. Remember that? Uh, I, I remember the established music recording industry feared it would be wiped out by the appearance of competition on subscriber TV channels and home taping of, of those same channels. Instead, of course, the market expanded and the industry took off and out of its slump. Today, unprecedented competition in the field of scripted television programming thanks to the end of the effective monopolies held by the major government-licensed TV broadcasters has produced programming of similarly unprecedented quality, as I, as I noted on a recent broadcast of Just Right, just a few weeks ago when, when we were talking about the show um, Black Sales. So, you know, no matter which industry you look at, Somebody already in that business doesn't like it when others enter the same field to compete. And, of course, that's totally understandable, isn't it? But the real problem begins when they have friends in City Hall. <laughs> isn't that it? So one more item, and this comes to us from A.B. on September 24th, and he asks very quickly, he says, Bob, what are we going to do with the influx? And I'm thinking, what's this about, too much of a good thing? Well, we should welcome it. However, you know, it's not clear which influx you might be speaking about. You could be talking about the influx of drivers or the influx of new customers, and that's something I, I, I emphasized last week. Either way, in a free market, and by that, of course, again, free of government coercion and price fixing, prices regulate both the supply of and the demand for any service. 
you know, free pricing, which of course means free of government or criminal intervention, is the only known way to determine the true value of any economic product or service. Uber is already operating on this principle within its own flexible pricing structure. Think about that. Government-regulated taxis are incapable of reacting to market conditions. Hence, you find that in low periods of activity, there's always an oversupply, while in high periods of activity, there are shortages. You know, it's a universal principle. We have to learn that the law of supply and demand is like the law of gravity. It is a descriptive, descriptive law, not a prescriptive law. That's it for this week, and of course, we hope you'll join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. They don't want that. You know what they want? They want obedient workers. Obedient workers. Because they own this place. It's a big club. And you ain't in it. (laughs) You and I are not in the big club. By the way, it's the same big club they used to beat you over the head with all day long when they tell you what to believe. All day long, beating you over the head in their media, telling you what to believe, what to think, and what to buy. The table is tilted, folks. The game is rigged. And nobody seems to notice. Nobody seems to care. Good, honest, hard-working people. White collar, blue collar, doesn't matter what color shirt you have on. Good, honest, hard-working people continue. These are people of modest means. Continue to elect these rich who don't give a about them. They don't give a about you. They don't care about you at all. At all. At all. Yeah. You know?